So uh, I have an extended family member who is not a Christian. Um, and regardless of that, whether I bring it, or bring it up or not, uh, they want to talk to me about religion. They know that I'm in ministry, and uh, they like to share their thoughts about certain subjects with me. Um, they would define themselves as spiritual, and they definitely have their own beliefs and ideas about some kind of God, but I think in a lot of ways they've pulled away from the church and from Jesus for all sorts of reasons. So they're uh, a little bit hostile to the church, I would say. And I remember once uh, we were walking in the city together, which is where they live, and we were having a conversation, and almost out of the blue, they just kind of turned to me and said, you know, I don't like when churches use the S word. And I was like, oh, what, what word might that be? And I kind of already had a hunch what the word was, but they said sinner. They said, I don't like the word sin. I don't like the sin word. I don't believe in sin. And in another context, I was recently talking with a friend about um, a particularly complex topic, and um, I was expressing conviction about this topic and just saying that, you know, there are certain behaviors and choices that I don't think God wants for us. Um, and in my mind, I didn't use this word out loud, but in my mind, I was like, no, I, th I think that that would be, we, would be sinful. And they kind of very quickly just replied, well, I don't even think God would really care about that. And upon reflecting on those two conversations, I think both of those responses were actually born out of a sense of God being so loving that he would never get angry or upset about what we do. I don't think anyone, and I will be honest that I don't fully like this idea, although I, 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 I confess it to be true, um, that there are things that we do that God does not like, and they do get labeled as a sin. And so I think, you know, that idea doesn't, didn't gel with my friend and with my relative. And so they just kind of threw the idea of sin out entirely wholesale. But I actually found this really interesting quote that, uh, from N.T. Wright, if anyone knows who that is. I think most people know who he is. I, I uh, used to work with a guy that joked that he was the, uh, the Pope of evangelicals. Um, okay, I guess that, I'll, I'll work on that one for next, next sermon. Um, the, yeah, no, he is. Yeah, exactly. That is, that is the joke. Thank you. Um, so N.T. Wright says this, the normal objection to theories of atonement and redemption that focus on divine anger is that this seems to run contrary to the deepest themes of the New Testament. Now, of course, divine anger at human rebellion and particularly at the rebellion of the chosen people, meaning Israel, features prominently throughout Israel's scriptures. Similar notes are struck in the New Testament, not least in the teachings of Jesus himself, and suggestion that quote-unquote sin does not make God angry, a frequent idea in modern thought as a reaction against the caricatures of an ill-tempered deity, needs to be treated with disdain. When God looks at sin, what he sees is what a violin maker would see if the player were to use his lovely creation as a tennis racket. But here's the difference, and I think this is the important part. In many expressions of pagan religion, the humans have to try to pacify the angry deity, but that's not how it happens in Israel's scriptures. The biblical promise of redemption has to do with God himself acting because of his unchanging, unshakable love for his people. So today's gospel reading, I think, is actually a really important one in that it is a declaration partly about Christ's ministry and mission here on earth. So I'm going to read the verse again. And so after Jesus has been kind of critiqued for eating with, with sinners and tax collectors, he says this, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. 
So for us as followers of Jesus, our gospel reading is clearly Jesus validating the concept of sin as something that needs to be addressed and responded to. Jesus' response was to come for the sinners and not the righteous. And there's more that we could unpack about that, but long story short, it culminates in the crucifixion of Jesus where he comes to die for our sins. And so this warrants the question, I think, well, then who is righteous and who is a sinner? And the short answer is yes. There are times when we can be righteous and we can follow what God asks of us, but the reality is that we are all sinners. And when I was having this conversation with my family member, I was a little surprised by this statement that they didn't believe in sin at all. I, I kind of almost wanted to respond, you know, do you really, do you lock your doors at night? Like this is, you know, there's evil in the world, right? I know it so well because I know myself. I don't think I could ever say that there's no such thing as sin. It just doesn't ring true for me in my soul. I believe there's sin because I know my own heart and my own actions. And I think that the American church has a really strange and complicated relationship with this concept of sin. Some, some churches will hammer on it in a way that I think is really unhelpful and, and really unhealthy. But then, on the other side, you have this pendulum swing that says, you know, we don't even need to think about that. We don't even need to talk about it. That's not even valid. And for the latter group, I think sin feels like such a scary topic or a no-go zone because the former group's abuse of that topic. And so it creates this really bizarre dynamic that kind of feeds into itself. An old pastor uh, that I grew up with at my home church used to say, it's hard for people to hear the good news if all you tell them is bad news. And I think that's a fair critique of how some churches handle the subject. But if we take what N.T. Wright just said, and instead of dwelling on sin as the final answer and hear Christ's words that he came for us, that is exciting. There is a response to this concept of sin. And what's exciting to me about the verse is that we actually read it on the precipice of a new church season. And as John said, today is a special day in the church calendar. It's the first Sunday of ordinary time. And ordinary time, despite its name, is not actually ordinary. It comes from a Latin word. I was actually talking with Malloy earlier. He's taking a Latin class. Do you know what word it comes from, Malloy? Yes. Yes, yes. Yeah, ordinalis is like one word that also gets used. It just means to be ruled or measured. And it's talking about the season of time that we're in, where we're back in a measured, notated time. So as we enter into this season we get this message that Jesus came for us. He came for us in our brokenness and our weakness. He came for us even though we actually didn't deserve it. But like N.T. Wright explained, we are saved because of God's unshakable love for us even when we go off track. We don't have to placate an angry God. Regardless of God's anger at the things we do, we have his unshakable love. And that is good news. We can hold in tension the sad reality that we do live in a broken and sinful world, but in response to that sin, we have God's grace. And I hear that word grace used a lot, and sometimes I don't think that people use it in the way that it's meant to be used. It's not just a nicety or a synonym for being kind. Grace is actually giving someone something even when they don't deserve it. It's a free gift that goes against what's actually deserved. So if the path of sin leads to a kind of physical or psychological or, or emotional death, then grace from God is him saying, I know you deserve the outcome, but I'm going to say otherwise, and I'm going to save you from that fate. 
And to have that message shared with us at the start of ordinary time actually makes it anything but ordinary. Uh, I spent a little bit of time thinking about how, just as my short time as a, as a confirmed Anglican and really pressing into this liturgical flow that we're in, um, that actually my perspective has kind of in the past been that ordinary time is just kind of uneventful. It's just this kind of thing that happens um, because you have Lent, you know, Lent has this very clear timeline and repentance and reflection theme, and Advent has this looking forward and expectation theme. And then we were just in the season of Eastertide, and that's bright and celebratory, and every season has its clear identity. And sometimes, though, ordinary time for me can seem to be kind of this never-ending flow of the color green that can go on for ages, and it's kind of just like the halftime show before, you know, really that's when things get, get going. Yet I think, again, our gospel reading reflects a different tone for ordinary time. I would argue that it's exactly in those quote-unquote ordinary times, those ordinary places in our life, that we have probably an even bigger reason to stop and to reflect and to align ourselves with Christ and to be conscious of why he came, and more so to remember that grace that was brought to us when he came. So if we were to see ordinary times simply as that, just ordinary then I'd argue that little decisions we make every day actually matter all the more. Even though we may not be in a season where we are fasting for 40 days or, you know, something like that. How we move and how we live and breathe in our regular season really does matter. And it's actually those everyday things and actions that, that can speak the loudest over time to people when it comes to our Christian path in life. It's those sorts of things that we don't often think about, those ordinary things that can make the biggest impact on people. I don't know about you, but I've had countless, you know, experience. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but, you know, you might be hanging out at a party or with friends or something, and then someone's like, hey, remember that time last summer on June 28th at 3 p.m. when you did that amazing thing for me? And you're like, I literally have no idea what you're talking about. And it made an impact on that person, right? Those are the sorts of things that matter. It's in those ordinary times and moments that we can express the love of Christ and the power of the change that the Holy Spirit has brought in us. It's also those times where we can fall short of that image of flourishing that God has for us. So in a healthy way, I think we need to reckon with this idea of sin. And to be overly obsessed with sin or completely ignore it would be the same mistake. It's, that would be just two different sides of the same coin. So I want to take a second uh, to be ultra clear what I'm not advocating for is some kind of shallow sort of outward appearance makeover. What I'm not advocating for is legalism, where we walk around this world afraid to do anything remotely imperfect or to be so absorbed in our behavior that we become sort of plastic Christians. Uh, I certainly do not intend to burden or shackle anyone with that. However, if we believe that the God of the universe came in human flesh to suffer a shameful death while taking on all our sin and darkness, then we need to think deeply about that, and we need to think about how we're going to respond to it. And to me, that warrants a sincere and earnest response, at the least. It warrants a response in how I treat others. It warrants a response in how I speak. It warrants a response in what I do when no one sees me. It warrants um, that, you know, what I think about how I can love God through obeying His commands. And for me, ordinary time is probably the main place where I should be thinking about those things. So I want to emphasize just briefly something that's coming up in our service for today, and that is our time of confession. 
And I'm not going to give you the punchline here, but pay close attention to what John says after our time of response and confession. Listen closely to what he speaks out loud when we take communion together. So may we respond to our sin just as Jesus had a response to our sin. And may we ultimately live in a posture of repentance, not burdened with sorrow, but of joy for the grace that God has given us. May we live into that grace and may we remember clearly and always the work of the cross in our lives. Amen.